All right, so Steven and I are in the same room together for the first time recording a podcast. Am I supposed to be excited about that? Is that the emotion you were going for? Steven did not handle rewatching Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone very well. That was the longest movie I think I've ever seen. I think that might be the longest movie in the history of movies. That was insane. That was. Now, we did watch the extended version, but I don't recall the extended version being that long. That was... I I think people have flown around the globe faster than that movie lasted. Quite possibly. That may have been longer than my flight. So Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, the first movie in the series, was released... To the viewing public on November 4th, 2001, directed by Chris Columbus, written by Steve Cloves, produced by David Heyman, and presumably some other people as well. It is, of course, and God knows, I hope you know this, 70 plus episodes in to a podcast about Harry Potter, the first movie installment in the Harry Potter franchise. We just spent the past, you know, 33 hours watching it. And we're going to talk about what we watched. We're not really sure how this is going to go, but hey, we're never really sure how any podcast episode's going to go, so we'll figure it out along the way. First things first, Danny, what'd you think? Well, first things first, there will be spoilers. Honestly, why are you listening to this? No, 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 I'm not giving a spoiler warning. No, 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 no. I'm not giving, I'm not giving a spoiler warning for a movie that was released almost 20 years ago for a book that's based on that was released, like, 22 years ago at this point? No. No, I'm not giving a spoiler warning for that. If you're... Clo- like, I think we're, we're at episode 80 now. By the time this gets released, we gotta be close to 80. We might be over 80 by then. We're closer to 100 than we are zero. <laughs> if you've listened to even a piece of this run that we've done, and you don't know what happens in Sorcerer's Stone or beyond... I I don't I I don't know, man. I'm not sure what to tell people at that. Um, it was more difficult to get through than I recall. I've also I don't know about you. I haven't watched it in a few years at least. I watched it semi recently because I've been rewatching them with friends of mine here in Connecticut, but I haven't like sat down and watched the movie with like a critical intent probably since like the first or second time I saw it Um, at that point I was 11 or 12 no that's not true I was younger than that this thing came out in 2001 I was 7 7 or 8 when this thing came out and I don't think I knew what critical intent even meant then did you know what influence meant? <laughs> yeah, Ron uses the word influence at some point. I'm like, 11-year-olds don't know the word influence. Come on. Uh, we have some parents out there in the in the listening public. If, if you have a child, can you just ask them if they know the word influence? And then just let us know. Creatingmagicpodcast at gmail.com at creatingmagicpodcast on Instagram. Just, that would be nice. I'm curious. I think it's the wrong generation. Us, they're all in the influencer generation. Well, yeah, but eleven-year-olds aren't going to be well. Uh, <laughs> what did you think of the movie? Um, it it held up better than I was ex- 
expecting. The CGI is rough. Especially seeing where technology has come from. I still like I still like the casting choices that were made across the board. Like I really enjoy Emma Watson as Hermione and in that movie like you just see her as Hermione. I don't know what it is about like because I've played it in the background of things and I still enjoyed it but I think like sitting down and actually taking time out to watch it I like starting to reconsider I'm like do I want this redone to be something that I would watch more? Because we've had that conversation a lot. This movie, which I didn't fully appreciate or realize until watching it, I would say tonight, but I think we started it two weeks ago. Uh, this movie suffers from not allowing space to breathe in the universe. For example, when the movie starts... You jump right in on Dumbledore dropping Harry off at the Dursleys, and you're just boom away with it. Whereas the book starts, where you get kind of Vernon Dursley going through his day, and you kind of get a sense of the world being built around you, right? Some of the deleted scenes, which we'll talk about later on throughout the movie, are scenes where there isn't necessarily a lot of important plot happening but you're kind of just living in the scene in the universe well, you also like lose the importance of what it meant for the community to be out from under Voldemort's control which you get a little bit in the book well sure and i think that's all well and good but i think my point is just you jump right like this movie in my opinion is a character-based movie when, as the first of a series, should have been a world-building, universe-establishing movie. Yes. Right? Like, we like we should have gotten a lot more of just, like, the Dursleys living their life, like we do in the books. We should have gotten a lot more of just life in and around Hogwarts, which we get in the books and the deleted scenes. Instead, this movie focuses, as a Chris Columbus movie does, so heavily on all of the important character points and sacrifices everything else around the edges. So what we get is just just character to character, and we don't get to live in the universe around it, um, which to me was to the detriment of the movie. I can, I can see that, especially, I know in general you and I tend to like world-building things. That's well, a general sense, because we're both in different realms, but like you are big into Game of Thrones, I'm big into Lord of the Rings, it's just... Well, you harped on to the point specifically, I'll bring it out more macroly, the point about not being able to see the people rejoice in the world that, that Voldemort has been defeated, right? And that's something you missed. The macro point for me there is we don't just get to see kind of the war, because Dumbledore and McGonagall and Hagrid have a conversation that conveys the same point that Voldemort is gone. Yeah. Right? But we don't get to see just the world reacting to it. Instead, we go straight to the important character point. And so this movie just takes all the important beats from the book, which I get that you have to condense down a book. I understand that. But all it does is takes the important points and just leaves out the rest. And so if you're looking for like a Spark Notes-esque synopsis of what the original text was, this movie provides it and provides it pretty well. But if you're looking to get immersed in this universe, one that at the time you probably didn't know, but now we know spans eight movies, right? This doesn't necessarily set up the world to be a place you want to live and breathe in moving forward. Agreed. 
Um, I'll tell you one, a couple of the things I saw early on that I thought were fascinating. Um, you get a lot of trusting and Hagrid in the opening couple scenes. Like when Dumbledore is um, at Privet Drive and he says, like his first thing out of his mouth is I would trust Hagrid with my life. And then he even says the next sentence, like Hagrid, I trust there were no, like they're, they're clearly setting up throughout the movie, Hagrid trust, Hagrid trust, despite the fact that as we see, Hagrid just is messy and spills shit left and right. Um, they set that up early on. Um, but the other thing I really harped on to, which is a much larger point for the rest of the series, is when McGonagall says, surely he wouldn't be better off living with his own kind rather than living at the Dursleys. And Dumbledore says he's far better off growing up away from all that until he's ready. What is ready? Who's defining the ready? This is like a subjective ready that Dumbledore is just throwing out there. And like no one questions him. Right? Like no one's like, well, what does that mean? Right? Because I think McGonagall has a really good point. No, I think it's very valid. Right? And I think obviously with hindsight, we see that the Dursleys were not preparing him for anything. Um, but also that there's still risk out there. Why would you like... Right, but someone needs to push Dumbledore and say, well, what do you mean by ready? Then he could say, you know, he needs to grow up humble because everyone else in the world believes him to be the savior. He's, he's not going to have a normal... Like, if he had just said all of that, okay, asked and answered. Mm-hmm. Instead, which I suppose is a fair enough point, the books and by extension the movie are setting up that people just implicitly trust Dumbledore. And he doesn't need to explain himself. And he does things that he thinks are right. And everyone else kind of just goes along for the ride. True. Very true. But that's also very much Dumbledore character. Yeah, I thought one of the things that I didn't catch on any of the times I've watched this up until, again, thinking through it critically today slash last month, um, when they're going into the zoo to the reptile house, the school children are running out and they're all in uniform and they're all, which is a common thing for British schools is for there to be school uniforms. But to me, I was watching, I said, Oh, well it's setting up that like it's same, but different. Right. Cause when we get to Hogwarts, they're all in their uniforms. They're all in the robes with the pointy hats and you know, kind of the whole thing. And to me, it was very much like a, Oh yeah. Like same, but different, right. They're in their uniforms they are super vibrant and green and the whole thing, but it's, it's a similar universe, but a drastically different universe. Yeah. I think I keep like started asking like stupid questions like, why did the glass reappear? What was the point of this? And it's just like, as do you remember seeing it the first time as like a child? I remember more distinctly seeing Chamber of Secrets with my grandfather. I don't have distinct recollections of seeing Sorcerer's Stone. Um, I know I did, but I, I, I don't have that flashbulb memory of sitting in the seat with the popcorn and the whole mm-hmm. thing. Do you? I don't have... You must have been pretty impressed, because when you grew up, there was like those black and white, you know, uh, talkies where, you know, there was... Um, I'm never visiting you again. Hey, you volunteered to come up here. That's all I'm saying. I don't remember, like, sitting in the theater seeing it but I remember like my initial impressions and I loved it but who wouldn't because it was a new thing and especially at that point I was already like well into the books 
that seeing that on screen, you looked past the things that bothered you. I do remember, and it's not until the end of the movie, there was like a specific, I specifically remember the point with the, um, what's the plant? Devil's Snare. The Devil's Have you snare. ever even read or seen Harry Potter? Aren't you like a plant person? I don't have any devil snare yet. Don't you have a plant you've named? Neville. Actually, all my plants have names. You, you couldn't remember Devil Snare? Wow, some Harry Potter fan you are. Huh. Well, anyway, I like specifically remember being like very annoyed they cut the line because I always thought it was really funny as a child where um, Hermione says like, where they're like, start, it needs fire or something. And they're like, well, where's the wood? And they're like, are you a witch or aren't you? And I remember being like very annoyed that that line was cut because I just enjoyed that line so much from the books. But outside that, I don't have like specific impressions of when I first saw it. You know, one of the things on rewatch that I thought was fascinating was watching the scene in Privet Drive when all the letters are coming into the house through the eggs, through the, mm -hmm. through the chimney stack, through everything. Because we saw at Celebration of Harry Potter 2018 how they uh, used practical effects to set that up with those those mail, yeah. you know, those post office, you know, letter counters or dollar bill counters, whatever they were, right, where and they were shooting. This movie them. was like all practical effects. I mean, a lot of the movies were obviously they had yeah. to get more into some special stuff as they went on, but you know, as we've seen at many different Potter events over the years, that's something they really pride themselves on. You know, I thought the the thing that was really fascinating was. Um, when Aunt Petunia is opening up the letters in the eggs, mm -hmm. having read Half-Blood Prince when Dumbledore comes to pick up Harry and he's like lecturing the Dursleys in their living room and like the, he has like the whiskey glasses uh, like floating in the air kind of like, like kind of uh, clinking against their heads yeah. and Harry's inner monologue is like he got the distinct impression Dumbledore was enjoying himself. The egg, the letters and the eggs very much felt like a whimsical Dumbledore really enjoying himself kind of moment. Like, like this will be a good moment. Now they can't have breakfast. Right, because no one else is doing Like, the ministry is not like, yeah, let's put letters in their eggs. Yeah. Right, McGonagall's not like, let's put letters in their eggs. Dumbledore's like, yeah, we'll send no, we'll send a hundred owls. We're going to spam their entire house with letters through the chimney. And let's put them inside their eggs. Why not? If they would have just been like... Minerva, you go handle this. She would have just shown up at the door, been like, he's coming to school, peace out, taking him to get his books. Like, she wouldn't have taken any shit. She's not going to play mind games with letters. What, um, what did you make of Hagrid's entrance into Harry's life? Not Because obviously he comes in in the first scene, but moving past that. H Hagrid as he enters the hut, Hagrid as he's at the Leaky Cauldron, Hagrid and Diagon Alley. What did you make of early scenes, Hagrid? Early scenes, Hagrid, I feel like it was weird for Ollivander to first bring up Voldemort and then Harry have to ask about it because that's not how it, that's not how it went in the books. But also that's like you would assume that if you're doing this and that you had a connection to Lillian James, you would want and you know why you have to send all these letters and you find out he doesn't know anything. I feel like you would fill him in earlier on than wait till this kid is so confused after a day going through Diagon to finally tell him how his parents died type of thing. 
Okay, you brought it up. I'm just gonna go there real quick. When Ollivander's like Voldemort did great things, I think somebody needs to check in on him. <laughs> yeah. I think the Aurors need to pay a visit to Garrick because you can't. Like, oh boy, I'm just gonna. If someone said Hitler did great things, terrible but great. I'm making a couple phone calls. Yeah. I'm not just kind of accepting that at face value and walking away. I'm concerned. Yeah. There's there's something. Yeah. Um, you know, I thought <laughs> one of the interesting things about Hagrid is they very much play him out to be a simpleton, especially in the beginning, because they're trying to make it be like he's like a uh, an equal to Harry in terms of relatability, age, maturity, however you want to find it, right? Baked it myself, words oh, and all. Yeah, see, that's right there on my notes. It was the whole, like, him mistaking Dudley for her. He's been stalking this family yeah. with letters, yeah. and he doesn't know which one is the right kid. Yeah, like, they, they very much made him out to be this, like, off, like, oh, I know they call him that in the books a lot, right? Like, just like this dumb guy. Um... Yeah, I I thought that I thought that was interesting that you get this kind of contradiction of opening scene. I trust Hagrid with my life. Next time you see Hagrid, he's just giving away secrets, saying he can't do magic. Mm-hmm. Somehow apparating, even though he can't do magic, he doesn't have a wand. Presumably, was never taught how to apparate, given he was expelled in what his fifth year. I thought it was like his third. Third year, he was expelled before he was learned how to apparate. Um, that was bizarre. The, a lot of, yeah, a lot of just weird stuff happening in terms of, it's not even canon, uh, in-world logic and reason. Yes. One of the things with Hagrid too is one of the things I see all the time and it bothers me is that they're like, but Hagrid was a father figure. Why didn't he name his children after Hagrid? Like, and when you think of the character of Hagrid, he, he's not, he's like a friend. He's like a best friend. He's an uncle. Like, so I always get frustrated because I don't think he's like a father figure in Harry's life per se. Do you say that in terms of Hagrid's full arc or solely what we just watched over the past 17 hours and 34 minutes? A little of both. Okay. Okay. Because I feel like even in the end, he's more of a friend. Not that he's not an adult. But I don't think he's like, he's not the one putting his foot down being like, y'all need to calm yourselves down. That scene on the tube, that's a deleted scene, right? Yes. Yeah, so I can understand why they cut it because he literally says, I've always wanted a dragon, right? And in the books, it's a little more, uh, it's not as blatant. It's a little more subtle in the books. He says the line. It's in in Gringotts when when he's talking about like creatures and dragons. Right. It's not, but what I, what I like about that, so I understand why they cut it because it's too, it's a, it's a weird, it's a, it's too much of a giveaway, right? If he says in hour one of the movie, I've always wanted a dragon and then takes Harry forever later on to be like, oh my God, wait a minute. It's also like a weird setting change too. But, um, when he says what, what I loved about the scene, when I, I can understand why they filmed it originally, was when he says, you know, vastly misunderstood beasts, Harry, vastly misunderstood. Then you directly cut to the woman across the muggle on the tube who's looking at him funny. Yeah. It, that was a really nice thing. Like, I, I, I get why they cut it, but I wish they hadn't because irrespective of the fact that it gives away the plot for later, it really kind of sets up another point about Hagrid's character and 
Harry and others' perception of Hagrid's character mm-hmm. throughout. Um, boy, what, what do we get next? Um, I meant to look this up. I didn't. Um, I don't know if you know the answer to this. When he's at Nazi Ollivanders trying the wands. Mm-hmm. And he takes the first one and explodes the shelves. Takes the second one and it shatters the, the vase. In the books, I'm pretty sure we're told what wands they are. Like, I feel like in the books, he's like 10 inches. Yes. He, yeah, whatever. I literally read this chapter on the plane here. Yes, and things don't explode. Like, just things well, don't happen. Where, I, where I'm going is, and this is something I was just kind of thinking offhand as I watched the scene, are wands one and two, the ones that don't work, um, at all familiar to the wands that Lily and James carried? Because I could see, you know, Fuhrer Ollivander being like, oh, the son of Lily and James... Let's try a wand that's like Lily's. Let's try a wand that's like James's. Neither works. And then he comes across, you know, the ultimate, you know, the Holly wand. And that does it. Possibly. I don't... I don't remember off the top of my head. I meant to look it up. And then, of course, I didn't look it up. Listeners, here's the thing. Danny, don't even look it up now. Listeners. I just realized it's even on Wi-Fi, so I can't... No, no, you're screwed. Listeners, here's a little bit of homework for you. I'm sure someone out there knows off the top of their head. If not, you can Google it. This is some good for us. Yeah, look, this is a good way for us to get some engagement. Got to feed the algorithm. Um, if you can recall or look up which wands Ollivander gives Harry to try before the successful wand, let us know at Creating Magic Podcast on Instagram. Let's rewind just a moment to entering Diagon for the first time. Oh, that watching that felt the same way I feel walking into the studio tour, walking into Universal in Orlando. That was like exactly the same. I definitely also like realized how close they did the parts to what was in the movie. Oh yeah, they nailed it. Well, cuz they we've talked about this before. They they Stuart Craig and the design team from from Warner Brothers came and helped them design the parks. Well, yeah, and I knew that, but, like, seeing that scene again, it's, like, the layout and, like, even the cauldrons that are stacked right when you enter the parks to the left and where Gringotts is and, like, it's very... Like, there's a few things out of place, of course, but, like, just watching it, it's like, okay, no, they really did... Yeah, it's it's Justice. it scenes like that where we kind of get this quick pan through all of the shops of Diagon Alley. Scenes like in a little bit when they get to the Hogsmeade train station that I really hope in any sort of future content they spend a lot more time luxuriating in because there's just so much vibrant, beautiful, presumably complex relationships and magic and just stuff happening. And like you could write so many stories based off of the mm-hmm. storefronts, off of the people who visit. Oh, I was like trying to read the storefront signs this time going into it. Well, you know, if you go to the studio tour, you can kind of just read them as you walk through slowly. They're all just right there. Well, I have a big note here that says Nazi question mark question mark question mark. <laughs> um, it's just someone someone the police need to check in on Ollivander is all I'm saying. Yeah. So in my in my notes, next thing I have is platform nine and three quarters. Anything else you want to talk about? Or are we there? Let's go there. Yeah, so we get our first Ron stupid face um, when Mrs. Weasley is saying, my son Ron's a first year, blah, blah, blah. And Ron kind of gives that like weird, like semi-proud kind of like grin thing. Mm-hmm. Stupid face. But then he makes up for it on the train 
I thought him with the corned beef sandwich talking to the trolley witch was brilliant. Like, he just is like, oh, I think I'll be all right, whatever he says. And he kind of just nails the grimace. Was yeah, all like about that. the feeling behind the kid that's stuck with. And that's kind of Rupert Grint's entire performance across the series in like a tiny little vignette. You get a stupid face in one scene. You get a brilliant piece of acting in the next. Yeah. Stupid face, brilliant. Stupid face, brilliant. And there you go. You've got eight movies. Throw in some messed up hair in the, in the fourth one and, you know. And he's like eating food a lot. And like I was like watching the chocolate frog scene on the train. And I was like, for how much they jump, would you ever actually want to eat that? I mean, I already, had, I already told you, like, during watching it, I had issues with how close Ron's gummy worms were next to the rat. I would have an honest question. Moving beyond the fact that presumably um, the chocolate frogs contain dairy, which then would make them not vegan. I'm curious, Tyler, I don't know if you're listening to this episode. Uh, if you are, a question for you to throw around your group me with Ivana Lynch and Momo and Robbie Jarvis is moving past the issue of dairy in the chocolate, would chocolate frogs be considered vegan or not? Because it could, you know, you could, I mean, it's not technically a living thing because I'm assuming it's just enchanted, right? It's not like it's... Ron says it, it's just a spell. Yeah, but but what does Ron know? Ron also says sunshine daisies butter mellow turn this (laughs) stupid fat rat yellow. Which, by the way, did make something happen. I mean, you're an older, older sibling. If you were in the wizarding world, don't tell me you wouldn't have given your younger sibling a fake spell. I wanted nothing to do with my younger sibling. I wouldn't have told her anything. Um, he does make something happen in that birdie. Yeah. Like light, like something happens. It clearly doesn't do like what he, he thought singed. it was going to do. But Ron made magic. That's true. I, just not for nothing. Ron made magic. Also, Hermione saying... Was it Holy Cricket? You're Harry Potter? The Holy Cricket felt so out of character for her. (laughs) Yeah. That was like bizarre. Yeah, she's not one to be shocked because she knows a fact or that she's met. Like, that's not her MO. Unless it's Gilderoy Lockhart to fawn over. Anything else from the train before we move into Um, Hogsmeade and Hogwarts? No, nothing from the train. All right, what what do you want to talk about next? So we're going to Hogsmeade Station. So I don't have anything for there, but we are then approaching the first views of the castle from the boat. Still magical for you? Oh, yeah, of course. Of course, the swell of the music? Absolutely. Absolutely. You just brought the music up. No, I'm not talking about that yet. I'm not talking about that yet. That's for the end. Okay. No, you're not allowed to look at my notes. That's for the end. I can't read your your chicken scratch from here. You can't even say the words right. No, we're not talking about that yet. Um, I want to talk about Devin Murray. Yeah. Because I know he's always been on the more diminutive side of the heights of the actors and actresses from Harry Potter. But in this scene on the steps when McGonagall's lecturing them before the sorting ceremony, Devin Murray looks like he's like four. (laughs) Like there's this one where they kind of pan across the front. I think it's right before Trevor pops out of nowhere somehow and like no one notices that he like like riveted in and all of a sudden he's there um but Devin Murray legitimately is like not even at like Tom Felton's shoulder yeah like he's and uh, I'm not saying there's any shots he was obviously a kid at the time but like small guy 
Yeah, that's all I really had. <laughs> this is this is where my notes started to tail off, and I was like, I went from like some what I thought were fairly astute things, like setting up kind of this, this parallel of Hagrid and trust to <laughs> Devin Marie is small. Uh, so the sorting ceremony, my biggest. You go first. How I'm do you feel? I'm so annoyed that they didn't call names in a logical order. <laughs> so they so they started with Hermione Granger, then they went to Draco Malfoy, then they went to my girl Sue Bones. Like, they, um, they threw her in. She was like, the, let's just throw this random Hufflepuff in. Shouts to Puffs the Play, by the way. Uh, then they went to Ron Weasley, and then they finished with Harry Potter. So, like, even if they were only doing, quote-unquote, main characters and a Hufflepuff to show there's another house, even though they didn't have a Ravenclaw, um, there's no... Like, they could have done the main characters in alphabetical order. Yeah. Would have made sense. I don't know. Um, here's a question for you. Who are all of the professors? I was wondering that too. I was like, who are all these people and what classes are they teaching? Because that's like a full, like, full on you bridal table. Like, yeah, I don't know what that phrase is, but there was like one, two, three on either end. Then you had like four or five on either side of Dumbledore. Shake like a U. Oh, I thought, yeah, I thought you was... No, like even, the letter U. Yeah, okay. I'm not sure why it had to be a bridal table. And um, that's what, in my head, you know how, like, they always put the, the bridal party, like, in front of everyone? I that, can't say I know that. I'm assuming you've been to weddings. I've been to, like, two? Well, they always, like, put the bridal party up on a pedestal. Sure. And when I saw that scene, that's what I thought was, like... Being on that stupid pedestal as the bridal party in front of all these people that you don't know because you're not the bride or the groom. One thing I will say I thought was interesting. Uh, yeah, also, no idea who those were. Listeners, if you can identify, like positively identify, not just start throwing professors' names at us. Because like, we know who, the, like we know Sinistra, we know Charity Burbage, we know uh, uh, Professor Mary Thought. Like if you can actually point and say that professor on that part of the dais is... This person and teaches right. this class. Well, I, but I, we can figure out who they, what they teach if you tell us who they are, right? Fair, but fair enough, right? If you can positively identify who these professors are, let Give us know. Give us a screen cap, please. Let us know. I'm deeply curious. I want labels and the pictures included. Um, one of the things I will say that I thought was fascinating is, you're right, the tech doesn't hold up over time. But as we've talked about in this podcast before, we knew that. Mm-hmm. Um but what I thought was interesting was the Great Hall set largely remained, like, I'd say overwhelmingly intact from the first movie to the last. Yeah. Like, they didn't make any major modifications. I think the biggest thing, which has been noted across a lot of different media, is that they replaced the real candles with... Um, the ones that don't melt out of the air. Right, which one, ones that don't drop hot wax on children. And they got rid of the real food for fake food yeah. uh, because of the decay and smell but beyond that the great hall if you look at it in that first movie looks exactly the same as what i saw at the studio tour it looks exactly the same as what you see you know in the movies throughout mm-hmm. like really well done i think they added in like especially for effect in deathly hallows that stained glass window in the back of the professor so snape can kind of fly out of it but beyond yeah. that like remains very consistent no, definitely not. Was that a set or was that an on-scene? Do you know if that room was like a set piece they made? Got it. Or was it one of the ones they did at yes. um, at Cambridge or whatever? I believe that was on set. I could be very wrong about that. I believe the library 
and the infirmary. And I know there's some outdoor scenes there. Well, yeah, at Alnwick Castle, there's a lot of the outdoor scenes they use in the courtyard of Alnwick. Victory is mine. Victory is mine. Great day in the morning. People, victory is mine. I drink from the keg of glory, Danny. Bring me the finest muffins and bagels in all the land. Shout out to all my West Wing heads out there. We looked it up. I was correct, although this is not a moment to gloat. More if I should have known this anyway. Um, yeah, haven't you been on any of the tours, Steve? Well, I've also been to Oxford. Yeah, but I knew that it was modeled after Christchurch in Oxford. Because I've, I've been there. I knew that. I couldn't remember if, like the infirmary and like the library, they actually filmed on scene for the Great Hall. They did not. Great Hall's a set. There it leaves in where I have been multiple times. Thank you very much. Anywho, yeah, let the feast begin. No nitwit blubber admin tweak. Sucked. The Bloody Baron, like being like a smiling, swashbuckling yeah, kind of pirate. Tidy. Like Captain Hook kind of coming through, did not like that. And he was like smiling. Mm -hmm. The Bloody Baron's supposed to be like terrifying, like this bone is, like, chilling. Fat Friar just like halfway through this floor. Like. Fat Friar looked like a drunk pedophile. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> he came in waving his like goblet, his cup at people. Got a, and he's got it. He, he, Self-esteem. Self-esteem. <laughs> Mr. Fryer. Oh, Um Jesus. Um, another gripe I have, which again is not canonical so much as it is just... I know Hogwarts has, what, 142 staircases? When they do that establishing shot of all the stairwells when Percy's leading them after the feast, and they look up, and there's like... Seemingly 17 floors. Did you write that? Uh, about the, that part of the castle drives me crazy and always has. And even going through the line at Hogwarts, I hate the setup of like the portrait. Like it's just, it feels like they just put this like big tunnel in the middle. And it's like this phalanx of, of stairwells. And I just didn't, I don't understand. There, there have to be more than 142 staircases if... And they can't be all stacked on top of each other. Yeah, I didn't understand why it was like a it's thousand feet high. It's not an elevator. It was like a thousand feet high. Yeah. But then when you're out playing Quidditch later, you see the castle. It's clearly not as high as all the... Anyhow, and that was a problem for me. And there's just like a million portraits, which is fine. But the way they're like... I don't know. That room always just annoys me for some reason because I'm like this is not this is not how it would happen in a castle yeah it just it was confusing it was a shot for like to show the impressive grandeur and kind of like the almost intimidating overwhelming kind of largesse of it all and it just didn't it was bizarre yeah it was bizarre this is where my notes start to fall off what do you have so classes let's jump to classes I think this must have been when dinner came because I 1000% am just missing like a solid half hour's worth of notes here because my next note's about the mirror of Arised. So I definitely, yeah. yeah, I put the pen down here. Well, we talked a little through um, if she turned Ron and Harry into pocket oh, watches. Oh, well, that was, well, yeah. So here's the thing. <laughs> McGonagall, who's like, you know, Ravenclaw hats to all, like, supremely clever, the whole thing. When Harry and Ron are late for class. By the way, Ron is, like, staring at the cat the whole time. But, like, he really shouldn't have been staring at the cat because in his mind he made it to class with nothing amiss. But, like, he's clearly staring at the cat, anticipating the cat, transfiguring into McGonagall. Just some bad child acting. Not, nothing more about to say about that. Um, McGonagall says, I'm not going to do the Scottish Brogue. You know, 
maybe I should have transfigured you and, and you and Mr. Potter into stopwatches so you'd be able to be here on time or perhaps a map. But here's the thing. If you transfigure both of them into stopwatches, neither has legs, so they can't get to class on time. <laughs> there's probably also a rule. Like, if there's a rule you can't change students in the fair, it's, there's probably one that says you can't. Well, it's the same. It's transfiguration. It's the same yeah. thing. It's not what, what you're transfiguring them into isn't different. Um, doesn't change the rule. Um, but yeah, if you transfigure both, neither can get the class. You only, you only transfigure one McGonagall. You're supposed to be like the logic queen here. Let's use some logic. That's all I'm saying. Um, I thought thought Alan Rickman was incredible as ever as he is in he every scene. He has such a great... Outside, like, you, you see him in the Great Hall scene. But his first scene in the movies being that potions class is so good. He just gets it. Yeah, like, it's a perfect introduction to getting to know a character and, like, their intentions in a very quick glimpse of a scene. What other classes do they take? I guess we don't get Herbology. We didn't get Herbology. We did get... Um, we got Charms. We got, we got Quidditch. Lessons. Yeah. But in, in the books, what else do they take um, for a first year? Is there anything else? There's so many professors on that day. Um, no. no, they don't take care of first year. I was like, but they have... But one of their textbooks is Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. So what class are they using that for? That's a book. That's a year one book. Well, because where I was going is it would have felt very Chris Columbus-y and very, like, not necessarily slapstick, but very kind of quick, quick cut, like, very fast-paced comedy for him to do, like, a professor entering the room in every single class. Like, the way McGonagall walks in and chides them, and yeah. Snape walks in, right? Obviously, with Flitwick, they have a longer scene because of the special flick thing, but it would have felt like if they just done, like, a very quick, like, smash cut of professor 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 mm -hmm. entering the room like for yeah. each of the classes that would have felt very in the oeuvre of chris columbus and for me the only time you've seen quirrell in his classroom is when she's pulling oliver wood out of class oh with the, the iguana yeah, yeah. <laughs> i do have to shout out an ex-girlfriend of mine who once convinced me after saying it so many times you know when you say a word so many times that like you stop believing that it's a real word yeah like she once said to me so many times that it was flick and swish instead of swish and flick that I like was basically brainwashed and I like would, <laughs> like would say it out of habit. I was like, no, that is that right? That can't be right. No, no, that is right. And so I used to say flick and swish for a while. Uh, shouts to you. You don't listen. I don't, I don't believe, but shouts to you. Um, the other day I heard the name Kevin and I was like, that's not a real name, even though I completely have a really good friend named Kevin. Uh, a group of former interns from, from work uh, call me Kevin to this day. They call me Kevbot2179. Uh, Zach of Zach and Maddie, if you don't know who I'm talking about, listeners, now's a good time to subscribe to Creating Magic Podcast and listen to our full catalog of episodes, including, but certainly not limited to, the episode that I did with my co-worker Zach and his wife Maddie. While I do love the 23 caramelly, uh, heavenly flavors that go into Dr. Pepper, you and I both have been on a bit of a health kick recently. And one of the drinks that I've discovered that is now an essential in my fridge, and I know in yours too, is Olipop, which is a sparkling tonic. And the way they flavor this thing is incredible. Uh, it's got prebiotics, botanicals, plant fiber. It's this incredible plant-powered, you know, microbiome drink. It's got 35 calories per can. 
think it's only got like two grams of sugar. It's only one point on Weight Watchers. I can't speak to that, but if you say <laughs> it's true, the classic root beer flavor and what is it called? Original Cola? Vintage Cola. Vintage Cola. I have subscriptions to both of those. I get those shipped to me, Same. I think every three weeks. I also will end up picking up a spare one at Whole Foods every couple days because I have no self-control and they are that good. Um, let me tell you, this stuff is, <laughs> this is like, I think the biggest compliment I can give it is when I drink the classic root beer, I feel like I'm back at my grandma's house growing up, like drinking a root beer out of her fridge. Um, this, it absolutely insane. If, if you happen to live near Whole Foods, uh, by all means, pick it up. If not, go to Google, type in Olipop, O-L-I-P-O-P.com. You can buy directly from them, have it shipped straight to your doorstep. They have a store locator that's very good. They have a store locator that's apparently very good. Um, yeah, so, you know, I will be sitting here with my Bose Q3 at... <laughs> I will be sitting here. We are on the struggle bus. So this is why we don't podcast together. I will be sitting here enjoying listening to Creating Magic or the Pin Pod with my Bose QC235, QC352. QC352 sounds right. I'll be sitting there with my Bose headphones plugged in, enjoying my own dulcet tones on Creating Magic or the Pin Pod. I'll kick back in my Bomba's socks and I will crack open an ice cold classic root beer Olipop and life could not be better. End of ad. I really liked the Mira Verisid scene. Of all of the things in this movie, it's not my favorite scene, saving that for the end, but the Mirror of Erised was just really well done. Cause like you could hear in Harry's voice, like the almost disbelief, and then all of a sudden this immediate sense of longing, mm-hmm. followed by when he goes and gets Ron, Ron's immediate self-assured confidence, like arrogance almost when he sees himself as Quidditch cap and all that. And it's so, it's like, like beat for beat perfect from the books. Like I thought that was really, really well done. Yes. Great addition, Danny. Yes. No, it was, uh, what am I supposed to add to that? I don't know. No, I... Yes. No, I agree. And it's one of those scenes where like, having just the character of Daniel Radcliffe in the room by himself, seeing that he can hold a scene like that. Because it it's more of an emotional scene when you start looking at it. Yeah, that scene really had to give David Heyman, Steve Close, J.K.R. and all them a lot of optimism and confidence once they saw that. Because you never know with child actors. You just... You, you, you realistically don't know what you're going to be getting once they age. And a child actor that didn't necessarily have, like, a lot of... Yeah, like, Tom Felton had a good body of work going yes. into this, right? Radcliffe didn't. Um, so they, you know, you're proje- kind of almost very similarly to an athlete, you know, coming out of, a, out of an amateur, out of a college, out of some sort of situation into a professional setting, you're projecting a lot of their potential to be great. Yes, and you're hoping that they will step up and meet yeah. it. Like This type of scene, I agree. This type of scene was like one of those where it's like, oh, okay, he, he gets it. Yeah. yeah. Like, he can pull this off and do the more emotional type of scenes. Yeah. So, Mirab Irised. How do you say it? Irised. Irised? Listeners, I'm curious. Send us a, a voice memo, although Danny's the only one who gets those. Um, hmm. No good way to do this. Listeners, how do you pronounce the mirror that Harry stares into? Do you pronounce it? Irised? 
or do you pronounce it Erised? It's either like an E or an E, and I'm curious where you fall on the spectrum. Let us know. And where you're from. I don't know that has anything to do with it, but fair enough. And where you're from. certain things. Like, I know I say button differently. Well, sure, but this isn't a word that, like, grew up in, like, U.S. regional dialects. This is a word from Harry Potter that's a made-up word. It is. It's not like ants or aunt or pecan or pecan. This is just a word that was made up in the late 90s by a transphobic woman from Scotland. And fair enough. Let us know where you... say museum? Don't. We're not going there. We're not, we're not going there. Where was I the other day? People were making fun of my accent. I, I was in New York. I was in New York. At, hmm. Okay. Also, listeners, the airport that is located in North Central New Jersey, that's a hub for United. Its air code is EWR. How do you pronounce it? I pronounce it Nork. I've been told that people not from like Northern New Jersey pronounce it New York. Yeah. New York. Newark. Not like new, not like you're like, can't say New York, but like Newark. You have a much stronger E in there than I do. I, yeah. I say Nork. Almost like N-O-A-R-K. Yeah. Listeners, let us know. Anywho, back to Harry Potter. Yeah, I love how you pointed to me like my notes are any better than yours at this point. I don't even, I, at this point I was bitching and moaning about the fact this movie was so long. I don't remember yes. what comes next. Um, finds the mirror, holidays happen, Nicholas Flamel, Hagrid spills all the beans. Yeah. Because um, really at this point it's just building to the point where they are going to go. I, did, I do think, to your point about the Nicholas Flamel thing. Hagrid, when he opens the door and says, oh, I'm not really in a right state to be hosting anybody, that'll be all, and he kind of just closes it. Mm-hmm. Robbie Coltrane has some really good delivery throughout this movie. Like, whether it's back in the cabin um, when he accosts the Dursleys, or this scene, really any of his scenes, he just absolutely nails the intonation that like leads to like whether you want to call it pseudo sarcasm, just a little bit of comedic timing, whatever it is, he, like he nails it. I just realized <laughs> this is probably adding to our fact this movie felt like it was three years old, like long. Um, I was like, why does the dragon even have to be in this movie? And I realized I completely blanked on the Forbidden Forest scene, and that's why the dragon was there so they would get detention. <laughs> like I don't remember watching it. Today. The forbidden. F- I really checked out when uh, Ferenc comes on the screen. See, I don't even recall watching that scene. I yeah, that scene is in the we might have, we might have been talking about something during that because I remember talking with you. I remember kind of tilting my head back towards the screen, and it was like Ferenc saying, "It's like it, yeah." Um, so all that crap happens with Ferenc and the Forbidden Forest and. Uh, and Walter Frey is there and the whole thing. We yeah. missed the troll earlier. We didn't even talk about the troll. Oh, yeah, we didn't talk. It's oh. fine. It's fine. It's fine. All I will say is the troll is about as accurately rendered as Grop is. And that's an, just a burning indictment on Grop and perfectly fine for the troll. Yeah. Like, straight up. Harry, Hermione, Ron become friends. That was earlier. Way earlier. We're, yeah. we're, we're not even talking about that anymore. <laughs> There's bathrooms. I'm, I'm just saying, I just realized we forgot it. It's yeah. fine. Let's move it's on. It's fine. Everyone has seen it. All right, movie. so they come out of the Forbidden Forest after detention. What happens next? Do we want to jump to the end of the movie? The, of- the, the, the next set of sequence of scenes that we remember? Sure. Um, so they 
ha- they go to the trap door. Fluffy's already sleeping. I have nothing to comment on there. Wonderful. Uh, well, no, it was weird that McGonagall straight up just... It said Dumbledore's... Dumbledore had an urgent letter from the ministry and is off to London to the ministry. I, like... Put yourself back in the shoes of being... What is that? Uh, fourth grade? Fifth grade? How old are you when you're 11? Put yourself back in the shoes of being in late elementary school. If you went to say to your teacher, hey, I need to go speak to the principal. And instead of just saying no, or saying no, the principal's not here today. You would have been older. Sorry, I don't like doing that. Regardless, you're not an adult. This teacher doesn't owe you shit. Imagine if you said, hey, I need to go talk to the principal. The teacher says, no, principal's away. Imagine if the teacher said, the principal's away because the state board of governors sent him a super urgent message and he has left with haste. No, like teachers don't just go around sharing that information. No. It's like a breach of some form of teacher, child, whatever. Privacy. Yeah, there's just a whole lot of wrong with that. Anywho, they go to the trap door because they're like, Dumbledore's gone. We got to get through this. I will forever be upset that the potion vials task is left out. Same. But from the movie producer standpoint, they had to shorten the movie. The potions thing would have been a bit too convoluted for a quote unquote kids movie. And they already gave Hermione the kudos for getting through Devil Snare. Mm-hmm. So in their minds, Devil Snare was her. Keys was Harry. Chess was Ron. And then Harry's to face on his own. Yeah, but I always liked the part about her saying how, like, wizards have no... Oh, I agree. But thinking... I 100% agree. No, I understand where you're coming from, but but I always just felt like it was, like, something important for, like, the masses to understand that wizards are not logical. Well, we see that. Look at the rest of the damn movie. True. Um, You got teachers spilling secrets to to 11-year-olds. And a whole group of... Professors watching Quidditch and just being like, "You're on fire!" Forgot about. Oh my god! In y'all in the Quidditch scene when Hermione sets Snape's robes on fire, you are in a box of wood, like fifteen. Well, that's not the important part. It's fire. But but no, no. But that for for the point we're about to make, no, it's not. The important point is you're in a box of like fifteen professors who are all highly trained wizards and witches of their own right. One sees a fire, and instead of using his highly trained, highly honed wizarding skills to put out the fire, he decides to shout, fire, and backs away from it like it's an atomic bomb. And then Snape's like, I'm just going to stamp it out. That's one of the things I did notice is early on, they use a lot more of just kind of that very just practical everyday stuff rather than like the wizarding solution. Yeah. um, Which is... Interesting. They're like 100 feet in the air in a wooden box, and there's a fire, and everyone's just staring. Well, I mean, look, the wooden boxing doesn't. Obviously, I know wood is more flammable, but that doesn't. The fact of the matter is, whether they're in a wooden box or on a steel box, they have highly trained magical powers. There's a fire. They should put out the fire with the mat. It didn't make any sense. No. At all. At all. Um, Yeah, I wasn't paying attention at all when Harry went through to meet Quirrell. Like, I kind of just checked out. I was just literally saying, is this thing over? I did watch that one because he went and he went, you? Yeah, and then the quote about there's only power and those too weak to seek it. Yeah. The whole thing. Um, I got nothing more to say on that, honestly. 
Um, Do you have anything more to say on the movie before we get to uh, some of our, our I awards? I know committed premeditated murder. Well, it wasn't premeditated. It was the second time he's looking at his hands. Well, no. They kill. Well, no. Well, that's not premeditated at that point. Premeditated means he went in with the intent to kill. He had a... No, but he had already... He had already... Uh, no. There was uh, no plan. There's no plan. That's no premeditation. I took. I had a minor-in-law. I bombed the LSAT. No, come on. <laughs> premeditation implies that he had a, a concocted plan to commit the murder ahead of time. Whether ahead of time means five minutes or five years, he had a plan. He did not have a plan. That was a reactive murder. If anything, that's a form of... There's one. It's not depraved heart murder. There's 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 multiple forms of manslaughter that it could be, um, but there's one type of I want to say third degree murder that's like a self defense one. Mm-hmm. Uh, regardless, that's not pretty. Come on, please, <laughs> Harry. Harry's Mister Minor in Law. Harry's done some fucked up things, but and and he did kill, and he will kill again. But calling him a premeditated murderer is like a whole other level. Um. Anything else you want to say on the contents of the movie? Not on the contents of the movie. All right. Then let's get to the fun categories that I made up five minutes before the movie started. Who, in your opinion, is the winner of this movie? I really just loved Emma Watson as Hermione in this one. She... There was no doubt with this movie that she really embodied the character of Hermione. That maybe because Hermione is was has always been one of my favorite characters i would like to say like one of the professors we just don't see a lot of the professors minus like little key scenes it really is focused on the students in this one my wonder is hagrid hagrid see this is why i thought it was interesting when you brought up earlier the whole hagrid father figure quarrel that you have Mm -hmm. If you haven't watched the rest of the movies or read the rest of the books and know that Dumbledore is the super close uh, parent-child relationship, mentor-mentee, whatever you want to define it as, that Harry has, they set Hagrid up in this movie far more than they do Dumbledore. The only moment that Dumbledore really shares with Harry is that kind of little clap and wink after he's sorted. Yeah, there's no... And at the end, when he's in the hospital bed and he eats the beans... Which is then forgotten because Hagrid gives him this photo book. Well, right, but throughout the movie, there's all of these close-up scenes where, like, across of the Great Hall, Hagrid shares a little moment with Harry, and they kind of give him, like, a little clap or a wink or, like, an approving nod. Mm-hmm. Um, you're right. At the end of the movie, he gives him the book. There's the wave. They, they set up the whole relationship in this movie as very much, again, mentor, mentee, father, son, whatever you want to call it. But if you didn't have future knowledge of the rest of the series, Hagrid is set up to be a major player. Like, Hagrid's set up to be, like, the go-to guy for Harry throughout this movie in a way that no other character is. Agreed. Um, Hagrid's my winner. What about your favorite scene from the movie? So, and they're not even, like, real scenes, but the scenes I just enjoyed the most watching is going into Diagon Diagon Alley and then also, like, seeing the castle at Christmas. Like, I Why's know- it got to be Christmas? Why can't it be winter? Why can't it be the winter holiday? Why has it got to be Christmas? Are you deleting Jews from the narrative, Danny? I'm not, but Hagrid was literally pulling a Christmas tree across the ground. But why But why has it got to be at Christmas? Why couldn't it be at the winter holiday? Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. 
interesting reveal about your personality and how you feel about me, your co-host. Do you your, Ju- your Jewish co-host. Your Jewish go co-host who gets Hanukkah gifts and Passover texts every year. I'm just saying. You um, called it Christmas. Listeners, I know you heard it. Listeners, if you too feel aggrieved by Danny's anti-Semitism, let us know at Creating Magic Podcast. I'm not anti-Semitic. I love everyone. Kind of. Uh, Kind of! (laughs) There it is. (laughs) I didn't say it. I tolerate you. Alright, your favorite scenes were Diagon Alley and Hogwarts at Christmas. It just, it just, it's that wizarding world nostalgia. Like, it just feels right when I see those scenes. My favorites... I have two that kind of went back to back that I really loved. Were two deleted scenes. Generally speaking, I thought the deleted scenes added a lot to this movie. And I don't wholly know if it's because I've seen the regular movie so many times that seeing what I'll call in heavy quotation marks new content, even though I've seen it before, um, just not as often, um, just added a nice dimension. I don't know if it's because they brought in a lot more of the book that the movie just didn't inherently, or I think they generally were good, but. Um, after the mirror of Erised, when Harry's by himself looking into the fire in the Great Hall, and Ron comes up to him and is like, you want to go play chess? You want to go visit Hagrid? And he's like clearly concerned after the conversation with Harry in front of the mirror, uh, I presume the night before. Um, That showed me a lot, A, about Harry, and about Radcliffe, about Dan, but also about Ron slash Rupert both about the character and the actor's abilities, mm-hmm. that was a really good scene. Yeah. Because the scene in front of the mirror Arizona, when Harry's like, I can't, because my parents, this can't show the future because my parents are dead. That scene needed a button. Yeah. And it didn't. It, in the books, like, I, I believe, right, you, there's like a passage of like, Ron looked abashed or whatever. There had to be, they had to have filmed that and all they got was a Rupert Grant stupid face. Yeah. Because they don't show that. And it cuts directly to, in the deleted scene, in the extended version, to this next thing, which then provides the button to the scene, which is mm-hmm. great. And it like, and it also puts the cement on, like, we knew they were friends, but it shows their growth of yeah, it just who shows, they are as friends. It just shows a, 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 a layer of depth and empathy that the rest of the movie didn't yet show. The other scene I really liked, which again, follows right after, is when, her, when they're in the Great Hall after the winter holiday... And Hermione's quizzing Ron, and Ron, she says, well, what happens if this comes up on the test? And he goes, I'll cheat off you. <laughs> and, and then she talks about the spell, the quill with the spell, anti-cheating spell, and he goes, it's as if she, they don't trust us. And he's like, so, like, uh, <laughs> he's like, you know, completely put off by it. Um, like, I thought that was hilarious. I thought that was great. And then, like, Neville coming in, um, all uh, uh, tied up, all... What, what's the body spell? Bind. Yeah, the body bind. The half body bind. Right, when he comes in, kind of hopping, and Seamus is like, "Me eyebrows are kind of back." Right, like that's what I was at the beginning of the movie at the podcast when I said like they needed just more non-plot centric, just in-universe scenes to mm-hmm. let kind of the world building breathe. Yeah, both of those do that. Yes, I think the the mirror of Arisen one I think also carries a lot of plot weight to it in terms of just Ron being there as a friend, but. Both, neither scene is is integral to the plot. Neither scene made or break the made or broke the movie, but having both of those in there just gives a, a an extra layer of authenticity. And like life at Hogwarts. Yeah. Um, finally, what was the most surprising thing uh, that you gleaned during this movie? I don't know 
like super surprising except how long it felt. What? That that's surprising in and of itself. That, if that's what that you want to go with. Well, it was very surprising, but um, I think overall it still holds up minus the technology. Yeah, but I think you have to excuse the technology. Yeah, all I right? think like, you do because knowing when it was you graded on a curve. But there's like certain things that are older that you're just like, yeah, this doesn't work, but this still works yeah. for what it is. I was most surprised by the music. And this is something that you had commented on during the movie and also at the start of this podcast. And I shut you up because this is my point to make, not yours. I have listened to the soundtracks a lot. I've been to the parks ad nauseum. I've heard the music so often. And I've been to some of the orchestral concerts that they do. I've been to the first four or five of them. Um, I didn't recall not just how present the music is in this movie, but how much it's tied to... I started viewing it maybe about 20 minutes in as the music being through Harry's point of view. Like like the, the music reflecting Harry's mood, Harry's impressions, Harry's POV, right? When he, when he comes into Diagon Alley, when Hagrid bursts through the door, when you see the castle on the boats uh, coming in the first night at, the ca- at school, when he wins the Quidditch match, when um, it's Christmas at Hogwarts, as you so say. Um, winter holiday. When it's winter holiday, when it's winter solstice at Hogwarts. Um, there's this swell. And it's this uplifting swell, and you feel this positive emotion of, of just sheer joy and acceptance and, and happiness. And what really sealed it for me is this being through Harry's POV. It's when you come up the stairs for the sorting ceremony and sees McGonagall for the first time. Because the music is almost ominous there. Because McGonagall, before you know her, is this super strict, ominous kind of character. And I was like, what? This is, the music is like almost like you're looking through Harry's eyes. And so that was the thing I really kind of thought was interesting, was the music very much being a reflection of Harry's POV. And I don't remember how it goes throughout the rest of the series, so I don't know if this holds true whatsoever. But I'll be interested to see as we go through the rest of the movies how the music reflects upon Harry and... I guess obviously the the, the you know the visuals of the movie. Yeah. I'm like curious because I know that I didn't notice the music as much in the movie as a kid, and I don't know if it's because one we do go to the parks a lot and we know the soundtrack. Like there's a reason your ringtone is the tone it's set at. My ringtone on my mom's phone is a dog barking, <laughs> and not a cute dog. Just for the record. <laughs> Um, that is not your ringtone on my phone. But is it because we know the music so well now that we notice it through all the scenes? Or has it just always been there and we just took it for granted? I stand... No, I stand by what I said. I really... I had no inkling of this before I sat down to watch this, you know, two months ago. But I really feel strongly that the music in this movie is a portrayal, a reflection, an expression, whatever you want to say, whatever you want to use, of Harry's uh, interpretation of what he's seeing. It'll be interesting to see where the next movies head with the music. Well, next time they go to Ollivanders, you're going to get the, you know, Imperial Death March. (laughs) Freaking great things. What a terrifying man. I would have walked out of the store. 
I Harry obviously puts it together there and then that Voldemort killed his parents. If if that was me, I would have hightailed it out of there. Yeah. Also, not for nothing. But Harry, who's been like quite literally like abused and malnourished and locked in like a cupboard under the stairs for his whole life. For him to be on his own at King's Cross Station, which for those who haven't been, is not like a little local rural train station, is like a very, very busy, crowded, like metropolitan train station. That would have been very overwhelming. Like you could make an argument that either it goes like one of three ways. It goes exactly as it did and he ends up being fine. He is so overwhelmed by all the stimuli that he kind of just, like, loses focus and just like, kind of walks around staring at everything and, like, just, like, enjoying life. Or he curls up in the fetal position because he's so overwhelmed by all the stimuli. I mean, that's what I wanted to do the first time I was in Paddington. And I was definitely in my 20s. Who was the reigning monarch of the United Kingdom when you were at Paddington Station in your 20s? Was it King George the... I hate you. Does it, it King George V? No, I'm in your house, and I know where the knives are, and I know where you're sleeping for the. Next was it few days. Was it Queen Victoria and Prince Albert? Was it Henry VIII? How quickly can Amazon ship me a taser? Was it Queen Elizabeth I? Yeah, they have pretty pink tasers too. There's purple ones. There's glittery ones. Surely Paddington Station wasn't around when William the Conqueror was there in in 1066, right? Were you there for the? Was it the Glorious Revolution? Glorious Rebellion? Oliver Cromwell in the 1600s? Are you done yet? If it wasn't so late and I didn't have a long week, I'd probably do a lot more with a lot better specificity. Uh, I do have a good book over there on my shelf about uh, the monarchs of the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s in the UK. It's the turn of the century. Anywho, I think we've about done our fair share here on Creating Magic Podcast. So we gave you all a fair amount of homework assignments. Uh, let us know how you pronounce... Nork, let us know how you pronounce Erised. Let us know if you too think Ollivander is a secret Nazi. Go buy some Olipop and tag us in photos if and when you do. And the word influence, ask your children. Oh, yeah, and if you have a child, or if you know a child, whatever, ask them if they know what the word influence means. Goodbye. So long. Why did he get us killed? Or was expelled?